You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week, we'll be discussing where propriety and the law draw the line on what can be published. A classic case, of course, is a famous politician whose daughter tried to commit suicide, and actually that never did get into any of the papers. Also this week, shared decision-making is being trialled in the UK. How can we give it a fair chance and help it move from academia to everyday reality? The challenge for the international shared decision-making community is that not many people are using them. And um, unsurprisingly, there's a degree of crisis of confidence, therefore, about the whole enterprise. Mm. But before that, the Horn of Africa is suffering its worst drought in 60 years. Deborah Cohen from the BMJ talked to Dr. Agaya Abulgasim Abdel Rahim, the UN Population Fund's deputy representative in Somalia, about how the drought and subsequent crop failure has been exacerbated by existing political problems and led to famine. Why is it taken um, for it to get to famine levels, which are obviously quite extreme, for the international community to react? Um, have there not been measures in place to stop it from getting to this situation in the first place? One of the main factors is the security situation. And those two regions are under control of the anti-government um, forces in Somalia. So the, the, the government in Mogadishu they don't have control over this. And those, they select and they decide on which agencies to work on their region. So many agencies are banned from working in these two regions specifically. And so that means this is may explain. So they are and, and even recently, after after the announcement of, of, of the famine in those two regions, those forces who are in control of those two regions, they, they um, circulated a statement that the UN is exaggerating. So it's, it's, it's made difficult. So the political situation makes it very difficult for the international community to get into Somalia. Um, and actually act on issues that are happening on the ground that, that might be contributing to, to the situation. Maybe they are not present physically, uh, but they are uh, present by, uh, by the local counterparts. And in this uh, situation, I can quote uh, my agency uh, responses. We are dealing with, um, with, with the reproductive health and gender-based violence side, and we are doing a lot in this area. We are taking, taking professional staff to some other parts of Somalia in the north, the relatively stable places, and provide them with the training, and return them back with the equipment and supplies so that they can go and work in hospitals and health centers and that. We are doing it like that, and most of the agencies uh, are doing their work using this strategy. So there is some presence in the in um, these kind of particularly in, unstable regions of Somalia, but you're having to use slightly different tactics to deploy people to work in hospitals and on the ground there. So these are the, the, the tactics which all the agencies are using, not only UNFPA. So, but because we are specialised in reproductive health, we take staff from there, train them on specifically on reproductive health, emergency obstetric care, and then return them back with the equipment and supplies, and we keep monitoring them. It's a very fragile uh, situation. And uh, specifically for UNFPA, 
Besides the reproductive health, we use to distribute dignity kits. That means it's a package of sanitary and hygiene kits to be distributed to people in crisis. In Somalia, because of the situation of uh, the food crisis and malnutrition and the suffering of uh, women, specifically, there is a very high fertility rate in the region and women, they, they have frequent basis, so they're suffering malnutrition on top of that. So then we decided to add some nutritional um, items uh, and, and, and culturally acceptable items into our hygiene kits plus clothing for the women because if the, there is a dress code in the, in the anti-government control areas that if the women are not dressed like what they like, so the women may be subjected to harassment and issues like that. And also with having this problem of food, serious food crisis and this, uh, and, 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 and this uh, emergency, the social ties usually disrupt and then the women need protection and uh, so and also we are providing uh, supplies and kits for to treat gender-based violence specifically rape if uh, in, and, and we are training the staff in, in in some sites so that if a rape, a rape lady reported that they, they, they will be able to, to respond to her needs. So how are you getting these kits actually into the, the areas that need it? Yeah we had many routes. Two years ago we used to, to ship them to Kenya, Mombasa, and from Mombasa through small boats to, to Mogadishu. And then the situation deteriorated that we don't have staff in Mogadishu, even national staff. And then we shifted to receive supplies uh, in Berbera seaport in Somaliland, in the very north of Somalia. And then by road to inside Somalia, sometimes by air lifted from Hergisa to go to Galkayo or to Mogadishu. And, and the dignity kits, the hygiene kits, we assemble them locally. We don't uh, import them from outside. The technical ones, from Copenhagen to Berbra, by road, by air, from Hargeisa to inside Somalia. And we have good supplies now in, in inside. Um, people are moving from Somalia, like you said, into northern Kenya, northeast Kenya. Um, and they're going to camps such as Dardab. What's the situation like in Dardab at the moment? Uh, from from the reports, Dardab was meant for 90,000, and it is now having almost half a million. We are trying to stabilise people inside Somalia because so that they cannot move and cross the border so that we can reach them at the time they are in need because if they start moving, that means it will take time until they be assisted. What's the reaction been like from international governments? Because there's various economic crises going on in the, the typically in the in the the normal donor countries. What's the been the response like from from those particular governments? Definitely, they need to raise bigger amount of fund, and I have seen appeals here and there, joint appeals from the whole uh, UN and international NGOs families, so that to request an increase in in, in funding to. To, to be able to respond to this um, uprising emergency, and it will mainly be in the area of uh, food assistance, nutrition to those who are malnourished, and some sort of uh, health, basic health, uh, medical services, vaccination of children, for us, reproductive health, and uh, also issues of... Um, of shelter because there are rains in Mogadishu and the people are just sitting under the rain. They don't have a place to to hide in. And the the issue of 
sanitation and water because for fear of the outbreak of, of diseases like cholera and others so that this may add to the, the already existing problems. Those are the main basic, basic issues. And we'll be covering that story in news as the situation changes. Now, earlier this month, the University of California Los Angeles Health Service received an $865,000 fine after one of its employees admitted supplying confidential medical records of Britney Spears and Farrah Fawcett to the US tabloid The National Enquirer. In the UK, Gordon Brown has complained about The Sun, publishing details of his son's cystic fibrosis, details obtained from the father of a fellow patient. Earlier this week, in the studio, I gathered Annabelle Ferriman, the BMJ news editor and a very experienced journalist, Jane Smith, BMJ deputy editor and our go-to person on patient confidentiality, and we were joined on the phone by Jackie Thornton, former Sun Health editor. We discussed the ethics and legalities of publishing personal medical details. Annabel Ferriman started. Obviously, these people who break uh, confidentiality by ringing out from clinics and revealing people's um, medical details, we know that they're doing wrong. But the question is, what um, onus is there, or duty is there, I wonder, on a newspaper, um, on whether to publish it or not? I don't feel we really have the right to know that. I don't see, but, you know... But Annabelle, but Annabelle yeah. in today's modern society, when you've got, uh, you know, Twitter and uh, Facebook, the fact of the matter is that these days, if, if somebody saw Hugh Grant in a casualty, they would uh, they would put it on, on Twitter. And I say, I think controlling information about um, p- uh, famous people in that way is inc- increasingly difficult. But you see, I feel that there's not the financial incentive, particularly, to reveal things on Twitter, that there is... For newspapers, they they think it put on circulation to say that Gordon Brown's son has got cystic fibrosis. They will reveal it. I mean, what I feel is that what's interesting to the public is not the same as the public interest, which you know is, I know is said over and over again. And I feel there is a case to be made for tighter privacy laws. I'm relatively surprised to hear you say that. You know, Annabelle, obviously, because you are a, a, a journalist. Maybe what we're talking about is a is a balanced situation whereby there can be good enough relationships between uh, publicists and um, news editors so that uh, actually agreements can be made. I feel sure that uh, uh, deals are done um, so that information is repressed. You don't read those about, about those, of course. Well, I mean, in fact, the classic case, of course, is a famous politician whose daughter tried to commit suicide and actually that never did get into any of the papers. And no, that, I'm sure it wasn't to do with the publicist. People, editors in that particular case, for some mm. reason, felt that they shouldn't publicise it. Mm-hmm. And clearly editors draw the line somewhere. It's just yeah. a question of where you draw the line. Yeah. And I feel, you know, there's a great difference between intrusion to expose deceit and hypocrisy mm. and intrusion for titillation. And I don't think that somehow journalists should think that invasion of privacy is always a good thing. Let me talk hark back to the Wayne Rooney case. You've got a, a man here who's an absolutely fantastic footballer. He earns absolutely tons of money. He's revered but the fact is, he's losing his hair. And what does he do? He gets a transplant. So you, you talk about titillation. That's, that's, that's what we call in tabloid journalism. That's a talker. It's something that's interesting. It's something that people have an opinion on. And I think if you take away these kind of talker stories, we're going to have a, a, a pretty dull press. And um, Jackie, and I, think, yeah. I think this is an interesting point to bring in. Um, James? Yes, yeah, surely. Um, I, I, mean, I think, I think the, the BMJ has always been on a, 
under a rather different set of constraints because it's a medical journal. But it's got more interesting recently because the Data Protection Act gives explicit protection to medical information about an individual. And in fact, it says that the only way that anybody can publish personal medical information about an individual who's potentially identifiable is with the explicit consent of that person. Mm. And that's not just information that comes out of a doctor-patient relationship. Mm. So that, that feels like a real constraint. I'm often intrigued to see quite a lot of medical details about individuals in newspapers. And, mm. and I sort of think, oh, I wonder if they got consent for that or, mm-hmm. or not. But let, me, let me enlighten you because <laughs> the, uh, the amount of work that I did the vast, vast, vast majority was about ordinary people. I would be dealing with individuals on a daily basis who wanted to tell me their story. Yeah. Often, um, you know, they would give me their uh, their story, their side of the story, but they didn't know the exact medical facts. They didn't know the exact medical terminology. Mm. Now, would I, in that circumstance, have asked for them to consent for me to see the medical records? Absolutely not, because what I wanted to do was to speak to a doctor who had been treating them. And so very, very frequently, I would end up asking for a letter and please uh, explicitly say that um, you are happy for uh, the doctor to talk to um, the journalist, i.e. me. Some people were absolutely happy to talk to me once they'd received this letter. Some people would be happy to talk to me without a letter of consent, but because they knew that the, the, the person had agreed to it because obviously I had details and information from them. And the third category was the doctors who wouldn't even talk to me even if they were faxed a letter of consent. Uh, and it may yes. be that it, the medical profession, uh, maybe the BMA, needs consensus on when you are contacted by a patient who has agreed to speak to a journalist and wants you to speak to them, yes, you can do that. Um, just to go back to the the Wayne Rooney case, do you think that would be the kind of thing that people in a, in a newsroom um, in an editorial meeting would actually consider? I don't think the Data Protection Act has ever been mentioned to me in an editorial conference. <laughs> it would be more uh, more privacy. You know, we spotted this celebrity coming out of the hair clinic. Um, we've got a photograph. We've got what we see as evidence. Are we going to get sued? Is it accurate? So even though there's there's legislation in place, it wouldn't be something that would would come onto your radar. I mean, I, I, I think I think lo- lots of the stuff about the Data Protection Act is is untested because mm. you can complain to the Information Commissioner, and I suspect lots of people don't know they can do that. And while while he doles out reprimands and fines, I don't think any of these cases had ever been challenged and taken mm. to to court. Mm. Um, so it's a sort of un, untested area of the law. What 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 isn't, of course, is the is the breach of privacy stuff like Naomi Campbell, who won her case for a newspaper publicising that she'd... She was outside an alcohol clinic. That's what you say about making a judgment about whether you've got enough evidence and whether it's mm. defaming somebody. I think another point to make is that you talk about you know, medical records. Um, I used to get a lot of medical records sent to me. Sent from patients or from, from yeah, medics? That? From the patient or patient relative who felt that they'd had negligent, oh, neg- negligent care. Yes. And they would want me to write a story. But what would happen, Jackie, if... Um, you got sent the medical records of somebody by a third person, say of somebody interesting like, I don't know, Prescott or something. Well, and you discovered that he had an interesting condition or something. Mm. Well, I mean, um, I mean, it put any of us in a difficult position if you yes, know there's a yes. story there. Yes, yes. I would certainly go to my news editor with that information. 
with a view to you know to publishing it and of course at that point you would have to think about the arguments of that person's invading that person's privacy you know and you will see articles where where papers say you know we have not revealed information we have passed it back to the rightful owner that's never happened to me that is a hypothetical situation and who knows what actually would happen um if that came to pass of course so it seems that the laws on privacy and data protection are, though not at odds, trying to cover the same situation in different ways. Privacy has a public interest get-out, which the Data Protection Act doesn't. And though not yet tested, perhaps we'll see politicians or celebrities using the Data Protection Act to prevent publication of their medical histories in the future. Finally this week, the King's Fund has published a report No Decision About Me Without Me, Making Shared Decision-Making a Reality. Earlier I was joined in the studio by Natalie Grayson, Assistant Director of the Health Foundation, an independent charity who work towards quality improvement in the UK. They have two shared decision-making programmes, Co-Creating Health, which is all about lifestyle improvements, and MAGIC, which is clinical treatment-based. Shared decision-making has been around for 30-odd years, and it's still under-implemented. And I talked to her about the difficulties of making it a reality in the NHS. At the International Shared Decision-Making meeting in Maastricht in June, there were concerns raised about national shared decision-making programmes, including that in the UK, How can we over here ensure that our programmes are really about encouraging interaction in a consultation um, between doctors and patients rather than just being a big sort of blurb of information? There is an important shift happening in the international shared decision-making movement. For many years what we've focused on is the development of decision aids and those are very robust, evidence-based, peer-reviewed, important pieces of material the challenge for the international shared decision-making community is that not many people are using them. And um, unsurprisingly, there's a degree of crisis of confidence, therefore, about the whole enterprise. Mm. I think in the UK, what we need to be doing is starting at the other end of saying, actually, shared decision-making is a clinical skill. I like to think of shared decision-making as a verb rather than a noun. It's not mm. the decision tools that are important. Actually, patients... Uh, want to have a a conversation which is an active process with their clinician. So the work we need to do in the UK is to start at the opposite end, to start with how do we make this happen in daily conversations. So important things for us to be doing in the UK, to start with clinical skills training, to work to support our clinicians to identify how can this fit into their practice. And our learning, for example, through our MAGIC programme is that those well-engineered decision aids are not the place to start it may well be that once people, both clinicians and patients, have begun to appreciate shared decision-making as something that happens in their consultations, patients will want to go and work through something that takes 30, 40 minutes outside a consultation. Mm -hmm. But what we found really energising for clinicians and patients is having very brief decision tools that can be used inside a consultation. And many clinicians really enjoy developing those for themselves so they can have evidence which is really pertinent to the local situation. For example, having the right length of stay, which is exactly what it is in that hospital, um, communicating levels of risk as they are for that surgeon. Mm. Actually, then people take ownership. And I think one of the real challenges of shared decision-making, if it focuses solely on uh, decision aids, 
is that they are not owned by local clinicians. So I think in the UK we have a real opportunity based on the work we've been doing through these programmes uh, is to really focus from the beginning on, the, on addressing the barriers, on starting with questions about how do we make it possible in the time available. And that can't be working through long decision aids. It has to be about uh, GIST-based decision aids. For example, things called option grids that clinicians could now see online, mm. um, which just give the GIST of two options. And then let the patient, once they're engaged with that, go on and, and find out more about it themselves. For major decisions, clearly for sort of surgical decisions, mm. uh, many patients will want to work through something more online. But equally, we're using those sorts of decision aids in primary care, for example, for decisions about whether somebody wants to start taking statins or not. Um, and actually, in that situation, working through something which allows somebody to really understand the risks and benefits um, and to understand what it means for them in their personal situation, it may well be that, that just a GIST-based decision aid used in the context of the appointment is enough to, to, for somebody to make a good decision. Okay, so um, at the moment uh, on NHS Direct there are some decision aids that you can you can access. Um, do you think these ones have identified the right conditions to go for or should they be you know, having a, a spread of, of more simple ones as well? I would like that to, to see the development of more decision aids, which are the sort of things that literally live on one side of A4, that, that GPs, physicians and surgeons are using um, now through magic within their consultations, because that's actually something that we know clinicians find really helpful to them. Mm -hmm. And we, we, our, our evaluation search shows that um, having something that simple doesn't add to the consultation time, which is a very important and genuine concern of clinicians. Absolutely. We don't want all surgeries and all clinics overrunning. That's not a reasonable outcome of this. And we know that from the evaluation, clinicians' body language changes when they present, for example, a one side of A4 option grid to a patient. It changes the nature of that dynamic. And that's what we've wanted to see as the, it, the evidence shows us that patients really want to see that change in dynamic. They want to feel a more open and trusting relationship. And I think some of these tools used in the consultation can help clinicians to achieve the degree of engagement with their patients that they really want. A lot of the clinicians involved in our co-creating health programme and magic programme say that they've really re-engaged with why they came into medicine because actually they're having more productive conversations with their patients in the context of long-term conditions, being able to have a really high-quality conversation with somebody with diabetes or arthritis about the really challenging health behaviour changes they need to make mm -hmm. and understand what they're motivated to do and have them leave the surgery with, with a reasonable expectation they will make some health behaviour change, I think is really important motivating uh, development for clinicians. It's, it's not a very um, motivating form of practice to constantly feel that you're telling people they ought to lose weight, they ought to stop smoking, giving them literature. We know from the evidence that giving people written materials won't change their behaviour. Yes. So I think when we can have these different types of conversations, when we can train people so they feel confident around the skills they need to do that, and they have the tools in front of them that really work and don't add time to the consultation, that will help our clinical community move enormously. What you're saying is it's really down to changing individual practice uh, in the consultation 
that's quite difficult to do to get to rolled out across the the NHS. I mean, how do you think we can we can get that done? Is it one of the cases of you know financial incentives, um, slaps on the wrist if people don't do it? How do you think? Well, I wouldn't go for slaps on the wrist. At the at the Health Foundation, we find constantly that any engagement in improvement activity tends to happen when people are intrinsically motivated to do it. Um, so I'd always want to work with what motivates clinicians in the first place. And there are very many examples of that. So again, in both the Co-Creating Health and the MAGIC programme, what clinicians really uh, find very useful is immediate measurement of their performance. Actually, we all want to know how we're doing compared to our peers. Mm. We want to know what our patients really think of us. So if we can have measures which tell us in pretty real time um, how helpful patients found our consultations, then actually that's, I think, a really useful driver and incentive that would make a difference. I think the next thing that is really important is extended skills training for clinicians. This isn't how people are currently trained. So some of the skills, for example, around motivational interviewing using the Steve Rolnick model can be tremendously beneficial to people who are working as professionals day in, day out with people with long-term conditions. We think that it can happen um, ultimately through changing the undergraduate training processes for health professionals, but also through ongoing CPD, the Royal uh, College of General Practitioners, is, for example, developing new learning modules to support clinicians in developing their skills in this area. We'd like to see other Royal Colleges following. We'd like to see NICE be very clear that, for example, in every decision that, that where there are options, that that should be part of a high-quality service, that people would be supported to make high-quality decisions. We'd like to see NICE have quality standards that say that for all long-term conditions there should be a very important aspect of self-management support as a core aspect of a high-quality service. So I think there are issues about national infrastructure, about regulation, um, about bodies like NICE really taking this agenda on. And then at institutional level, there are much more basic processes that need to be in place. Clinicians often who want to undertake this training and to focus on developing this area need support from the managers who are running those systems. One of the challenges is when there are conflicting incentives. For example, around shared decision making, actually if a patient wants more time to make a good decision, we need to understand how that relates to things like 18-week targets. Um, so we must, must make sure there aren't disincentives in our system. And that's almost as important as putting in money or other incentives to make this happen. Mm. Natalie Grayson from the Health Foundation there. That's all for this week. Next week, Harriet Vickers reports from a mobile TB unit on their efforts to identify the disease in homeless people. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.